Amen. If you have your Bibles, we're going to turn to Hebrews chapter 9. And I think it would be great if we stood for the reading of the Word. Why don't we do that? Hebrews chapter 9, verse 2. I'm going to read from the New Living Translation. I hope that's all right. (laughs) Hebrews 9 and 2. There were two rooms in that tabernacle. In the first room was a lampstand, a table, and sacred loaves of bread on the table. And this room was called the holy place. And there was a curtain, and behind the curtain was the second room. And that was called the most holy place. And it was in that room where there was a gold incense altar and a wooden chest called the Ark of the Covenant. Somebody say the Ark of the Covenant. It was covered with gold on all sides. And please take notice, inside the Ark were a gold jar containing manna, Aaron's staff that sprouted leaves, and the stone tablets of the covenant. Inside the Ark were a gold jar containing manna, Aaron's staff that sprouted leaves, and the stone tablets of the covenant. For a few minutes today, I want to speak to you on the subject of failures. Failures. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for the privilege of being in your presence. Thank you for the privilege of of being apostolic and knowing the truth, God. Thank you, Jesus, for this opportunity for us to to share the bread of life together. And I pray, Jesus, that, that it would go forth and accomplish your will, change us, challenge us, help us. God, let your will be done and your kingdom come here today. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. You can be seated in Jesus' name. I wonder this morning if there's anybody in the room that owns a memory box of any kind. Anybody want to raise your hand? And some of the junior high guys are kind of like sheepish about it. Like, (laughs) anybody want a memory box? Maybe a, a, a shoe box with some photos on the inside? Does anybody here keep a journal or a diary and you write down your thoughts? few of you? Again, that one, the junior high guys are really shy. <laughs> Don't want to admit it. When I was in the 10th grade, which uh, was 10 years ago, hard to believe, but in 10 years ago when I was in the 10th grade, I, I took a shop class, and it was in that class that I built something. It was, it was a curio cabinet. I don't know if you know what a curio cabinet looks like, but there it is. That is actually my curio cabinet. I built that with my bare hands. Makes me feel like a man. I mean, I think that's pretty, pretty nice. It's looking quite beautiful. It was a pretty serious build. Everything was made from scratch. Nothing was prefabricated. We had to take raw boards, and we would joint them to get a right angle and plane them to the right thickness. We had to route all of the decorative edges along the, the base, the top, and the door frame. We even had to cut the glass that is there inside the door. There's a pane of glass. We'd have to score the glass and snap it off. I mean, it was, it was pretty serious. And I was quite proud of my curio cabinet. I still am. And so I took it home. I hung it on my wall in my bedroom at my parents' house, and then I started putting some keepsakes in it. And there are several interesting treasures in this cabinet that I thought I would just take a moment and I would, I would share with you. On the bottom shelf, It's a little bit messy because I had taken it off the wall and things had moved around. But on the bottom, there's a rubber band ball in there that I made. Do you see that rubber band ball? Is that not an impressive rubber band ball? And I just want you to know, I didn't cheat and I didn't start with a bouncy ball. That is 100% unadulterated rubber bands, okay? That takes skill. Thank you very much. Thank you. 
All of my high school ID cards are down there in the back along the left. I'm not going to show you those. That's, that's very embarrassing. On the left, the green thing there with the spots, that's a ceramic container. It's kind of on its edge. You don't really see the edge of it. Um, and in that, I have a few keepsakes. There's uh, the phone that I had when my wife and I dated. It was the LG chocolate slide. Anybody have the LG chocolate so slide back in the day? That phone was legit, man. The keys to my first vehicle are in that little thing, the 2003 green Kia Sedona. I drove a minivan. That was my first vehicle. If you get a minivan uh, as your first vehicle, God bless you. <laughs> God bless you. <clears throat> now, on the top of this, of this curio cabinet, there's a baseball there. It's, it was given to me from a uh, former youth pastor that I had, Justin McKenzie. He's in Halifax now. And uh, it's from Walt Disney World. He brought it back for me one time. There's a wristband there from the 2010 Winter Olympics. Do you see Team Canada? The 2010 Winter Olympics, they were held in Vancouver, British Columbia. That is in Canada, for those that, that don't know. And you may recall that that was the year that Canada took more gold medals than any other country. Probably not going to get an applause on that one, but it's the truth. <laughs> Look at this. 14 gold medals, and you may also recall, some of you young people might not, but, but that was the year when Canada beat out another team from another country that shall remain nameless in the men's hockey gold medal game. Sidney Crosby from eastern Canada, kind of where I live, he scored the game winner in overtime. That's, that's one of my keepsakes in my curio cabinet. Also in the back on the left, you will see a green book with, with a wolf on it. Please don't ask me why I picked that particular design, but this was my diary when I was just a, a wee lad in elementary school. And I thought today it would be interesting if I shared a few entries from my diary way back in the day. Would that be okay? Buckle your seatbelts. Entry number one, September 15th. The year 2000. Dear diary, well, I lost the keys to your lock and I finally found them. They were in an M&M box with my pogs. You don't even know what pogs are, but that's where the keys were. <clears throat> Page two, entry number two, September 15th, 2000. I felt like writing that day. This is the second entry. Well, today Vanessa dumped me. This is real. To this guy who looks very weird. His name is Chris. I kind of mind, but I just hope something... <laughs> I just hope something turns up. I didn't write this just before the message. This is, this is 2000. September 16th, year 2000. Well, it's me again, and I'm helping my mom and dad clean up the playroom. It's not very fun, but my dad says I'll get a prize later. And then I took a break, May 6, 2001. Must have lost my keys again. This is pretty cool. My dad got voted in for the pastorate in Fed Fredericton. I don't know, I didn't say pastorate, I just said that now. For the pastor in Fredericton. So now we go up there on the weekends to be there for church. Well, time for bed. See ya. June 6, 2001. This will be the last one. This is my favorite. <laughs> this, actually, this was the last entry ever. I got tired of of journaling after this. June 6, 2001, two friends gave me invitations for a party. I cannot go to any. 
One is very extreme, at least on the invitation. But the other warms my heart because it's simple, and that's what I like. <laughs> I was a real sensitive kid, you know. Now, I have placed these items all 100% real, I promise you, in this curio cabinet because they are things that I want to cherish and remember. Perhaps you have something similar, maybe a memory box, a shoe box that you keep your photos in, or, or maybe you too like to journal from time to time. And in all of these things, whether it be a, a shoe box or a journal or whatever, these are, you put things that you want to remember, things that you want to cherish and look back on someday. Typically, in memory boxes, you don't put negative things. Kind of goes without saying. You know, you're not going to blow up a screenshot of the breakup text and put that in your shoebox of photos. We, think, we would think you'd be quite strange if you did something like that. You don't do that sort of thing, right? You know, you don't, I don't know, just, you fall off your bike, you don't, you don't keep the the rock that was lodged into your kneecap or something. You don't want to remember that kind of thing. You don't want to remember the negative things in your life. You put some positive things that bring some nostalgia to your life. In the Jewish tradition, there was no physical item, no article of furniture more sacred and holy than the Ark of the Covenant. You can read God's instructions to Moses on how, to, how they were to build it in Exodus chapter 37. It had particular dimensions. It had ornate beautiful finishings, and the whole thing was covered in gold. The ark served as the only physical manifestation of God on earth at that time, and it's because his holy Shekinah presence dwelt between the golden cherubim that sat upon the lid of the ark, which of course was called the mercy seat. The ark was significant throughout Israel's history. God used the ark as an indicator of when he wanted the nation of Israel to travel or to stop. As soon as the pillar of cloud or the pillar of fire would begin to move in the wilderness, the priests uh, knew that that was their cue. They would pick up the ark and they would begin to move and the people would follow. The ark was carried 2,000 cubits or about a half a mile ahead of the nation in their travels. It was carried into their battles and it even parted the Jordan River as they entered into the promised land. God spoke from between the cherubim. And because the ark was so holy, when people touched it out of turn, they would die. Just ask Uzzah. The ark brought blessing to wherever it resided. Just ask Obed-Edom. And once the tabernacle was constructed, only the high priest on the great day of atonement could even enter the Holy of Holies to stand before the ark. One man, one day a year. This ark of the covenant was an absolutely important piece of furniture. It was Israel's most prized possession and the most sacred thing that they had. Now, on top of all of this, it would seem to me that the Ark, it was sort of a memory box because the Ark of the Covenant, it held some mementos from Israel's past. And we read it already, but Hebrews 9 and 4, it says in that room where the gold incense altar was, there was also a gold chest called the Ark of the Covenant and inside the ark, there was three things. The gold jar containing manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the stone tables of the covenant. And we often think of these three items, the pot of manna and Aaron's rod that budded and 
and also the, the tables of stone that had the Ten Commandments and the law on it. We think of these things as trophies of God's miraculous power, but today, I wonder if you consider with me that these items are actually not mementos of Israel's triumphs, but rather of Israel's most embarrassing moments of defeat and disgrace. These represented Israel's biggest failures. The pot of manna, first in the list. Of course, God provided bread from heaven for his people, but it came as a result of an unthankful spirit. This wasn't Israel's brightest moment. The manna came not because Israel was behaving right, but because Israel was behaving wrong. Exodus 16 and 2, it says, There too the whole community of Israel complained about Moses and Aaron. And they said, If only the Lord had killed us back in Egypt. There we sat around pots filled with meat, and we ate all the bread that we wanted. But now, Moses, you've brought us into this wilderness to starve us all to death. Imagine, this takes place only a short time after God delivers Israel from Egypt. They had been slaves for literally 400 years, generation after generation after generation, and God miraculously brings them out from their captivity. And how does Israel repay God for this miraculous manifestation of his power? It's with constant whining and complaining, that's how. Whining and complaining. They have the audacity even to suggest that life was better in Egypt and that dying would be better than wandering in this wilderness, following after the Spirit of God. That's what they said. We wish we would just die. Essentially, this is a slap in the face of God, as you can imagine. So we say a failure. And so in response to this, of course, God sends down the manna Literally every day, except for the seventh day of the week, the Israelites would wake up and there would be a bread-like substance on the ground and they would get whatever they needed for the day. They would eat until their hearts were content. But it's all because of an unthankful spirit. This wasn't one of Israel's highlight moments. It's probably not something that I would have put in my curio cabinet, you know? Not something you'd put in your memory box. Every morning when they got up, they ate that manna. Yes, it was a symbol of God's faithfulness, but it was also a reminder of how fickle and how whiny they were. But to add insult to injury, God instructs Moses to take some of that manna, put it in a jar, and place it inside the ark, their most prized possession. Again, not a symbol of Israel's victories, but one of their failures. And God said, that's what I want inside the ark. Put the manna inside the ark. He also told them to put Aaron's rod that budded inside the ark. When Aaron's staff, which you, you just gotta, you know, you gotta remember this. This is not attached to a tree. It's not attached to the ground. There's no life. This is a dead stick. And when it budded and blossomed with all, uh, almonds, certainly it was a supernatural miracle from God. But the reason that God did this Again, not a highlight real moment. It was because there was a critical error in the camp of Israel and a rebellious group that tried to overthrow Aaron's authority as the high priest. There was a man named Korah. Maybe you've heard of him. He was from the tribe of Levi, and he led a rebellion against Moses and Aaron. 
with two other men named Dathan and Abiram. And there was about 250 other guys, prominent leaders from Israel's camp that joined with them to do this. And so in response to this, God literally opens the ground up and he swallows these three main families that are leading the rebellion. Literally the husbands and the wives, the kids, their tents, their possessions, all of their livestock, everything falls into this big sinkhole and it closes on top of them and they're gone. And then God sends fire and he burns up the remaining 250 men. And then as if that's not enough, the very next day, the rest of Israel, they start complaining again. They start criticizing Moses and Aaron again. And they blame them for killing the 250. And God's not pleased. And so he sends a plague. And it ultimately kills another 14,700 people. 15,000 odd people died in a span of two days because of a critical spirit that was in the camp. Not a highlight real moment. The story ultimately ends when God gets the leader from each tribe. They bring their staff. They put their name on it. And Aaron brought his staff representing the tribe of Levi. And and number 17 and 8 says, When he went into the tabernacle of the covenant the next day, he found that Aaron's staff representing the tribe of Levi had sprouted, budded, blossomed, and produced ripe almonds. God did this to validate Aaron's role as the high priest. And it was a miracle. So we say it was a miracle. But obviously the reason it had to be done was because Israel had a critical spirit. It was critical of its leaders. And many lives were lost because of it. You know, if if I had the choice, and if you had the choice, probably I wouldn't put that rod that budded inside my curio cabinet or inside of a memory box, if it would even fit. I, I probably wouldn't do that. This isn't a victory. This is a failure. But nonetheless, in number 17 and 10, God said to Moses, place Aaron's staff permanently before the ark to serve as a warning to the rebels. A massive failure in the history of Israel, but God said, I want that to go inside the ark. Put it right next to the manna, Moses. And finally, of course, there's the tables of stone that were inscribed with The words of the covenant given to the people by God on Mount Sinai. In Exodus chapter 19, about two months after they had left Egypt, Israel were camping near Sinai. And while there, Moses, he climbed up the mountain to receive the law from God. The Bible tells us he was there up on the mountain for about 40 days. And because he was was taking so long, the Bible also says that the people grew impatient of Moses. They were getting tired of waiting for him to come back down. And Exodus 32 and 1 says, When the people saw how long it was taking Moses to come down the mountain, they got around Aaron and they said, Come on, make us some gods who can lead us. We don't know what happened to this fellow Moses who brought us here from Egypt. And so Aaron said, Go ahead, take the gold rings from the ears of your wives and your sons and your daughters. Bring them to me. And, and that's what the people did. They brought all this this gold paraphernalia, and Aaron took it, he melted it down, and he molded for them a golden calf. And when the people saw it, they exclaimed, O Israel, these are the gods that brought you out of the land of Egypt. Here at the base of the mountain, God's people are entertaining pagan worship. They're committing idolatry against God, and they're giving credit for the miraculous deliverance to this lifeless, golden 
calf. Little did Moses know while he was on the mountain, hearing from God that his fellow countrymen were at the base of the mountain, giving themselves to pagan worship. So Joshua, who's up there on the mountain with Moses, he hears what's going on at the bottom, and and he didn't really even know what it was at first, and he just says, Moses, we got to go. We got to get off this mountain. And so that's what they do. They leave the mountain. They start trekking down. Moses has the two stone tablets in hand. When they get to the base, Exodus 32, verse 19 says, Moses saw the calf. He saw the dancing. He burned with anger. And he took those two tablets of stone and he threw them on the ground and they smashed into a thousand pieces at the base of the mountain. Moses deals with Aaron. He deals with the people. And then he heads up the mountain a second time and he receives the law again. And now he has a second set of stone tablets, which he then, of course, brings down as well. Certainly, it's not one of Israel's finest hours. Again, it's not something that you would likely place in a memory box. Nothing that I'd put in my curio cabinet. But this is the final item that God told Moses to put inside of the ark. A pot of manna, which represents an unthankful spirit. Aaron's rod that budded, which represents a critical air in the camp. And the stone tablets with the covenant on them, which just represents outright sin and rebellion against God. It's interesting, but many scholars, they actually believe that the broken tablets, they sat inside the ark with the second set, which was a constant reminder of how Israel violated God's law. It's amazing to me to think that that God instructed Moses to put items in the ark that were not Probably items that you or I would have picked. Probably not items that we'd put in our memory boxes. I don't think that these are the the types of memories that I would want to remember. Moments of irresponsible behavior and just outright sin and flagrant failure. I wouldn't want to remember that. And it begs the question, I just couldn't help but wonder why would God ask Moses to put these particular items inside the ark? Why? Why would God want Moses and his people to remember these moments in their history? I mean, couldn't they have put some other things in there that were reminiscent of the good times? I mean, couldn't they have highlighted the victories instead of highlighting the failures? Why these items, God? You know, I got thinking about all that Israel had been through. It wasn't very long that they had been you know, delivered from Egypt. But even in that short time, I'm sure there were some other things that they could have picked. I got thinking, I thought, you know, why not God get Israel and get Moses to take some of the plunder that they had received from Egypt? On the night that they were brought out of that pagan land, why not take some of the, the treasure that the Egyptians had, had basically relinquished to them and put that inside the ark, which would, of course, remind them every time they thought of it about the night that God brought them out and, and of God's miraculous power in their life. Why not do something like that? You know, why not maybe when they were going through the Red Sea and they were walking through on dry ground as the waters literally stood at their attention uh, on either side of them, why not take maybe some stones or some sand and put that in a satchel from the base of the Red Sea and put that inside the ark, reminding them of when they passed through the Red Sea and, and of God's supernatural ability? Why not something like that? See, it wasn't anything like this at all. It was three items 
commemorating moments of failure. I'm not going to be very much longer this morning, but I think I know why God got them to do what he did. See, God wasn't trying to shove Israel's mistakes and failures in their faces. That's not what God does. But what God was trying to do when he told them to put the pot of manna and the rod that budded and the tables of stone inside the ark, he was trying to teach them a principle. You see, the ark of the covenant had a lid, as we've already said, and that lid was called the mercy seat. Every year, On the Day of Atonement, the high priest would go behind the veil in that tabernacle and later in the temple, and he would sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice upon that mercy seat. And this was done so that Israel's sins could be covered for one more year. And so you've got to get the picture here. On the inside of that ark, you've got three items that symbolize Israel's biggest moments of failure. Israel's biggest failures were placed inside of a box that was covered by mercy, and it was covered by blood. I think God was wanting to tell Israel and he's wanting to tell us today that even the biggest sins and the biggest mistakes, they're no match for my mercy and they're no match for my blood. I believe God wants to tell a young person this morning that your biggest failure and your biggest mistakes and the moments you wish you could forget, they're no match for God's mercy and for his blood and for his grace. Come on, the decisions you wish you could go back and do over again, God is able to cover them with his blood. Oh, I wish we'd give God praise this morning. Can you clap your hands with everything you've got and thank God for the blood that he shed? You can be seated. Maybe you think that you've done too much. Maybe you think that God can't use you anymore. Maybe you think that your sin is too great, that you've gone too far, that you're unlovable, that God doesn't want you or that God doesn't want to use you. But can I just remind us this this morning that, that the Bible still says that where sin did abound, grace didn't just abound, but grace did much more abound. Can I just remind us that if our sin, if it finds a level and it comes up to here, you you don't really need to know how big God's grace is, except that God's grace will always be a little bit more than your sin. God's grace will always abound a little bit greater than your sin. It doesn't matter how big your sin is this morning. God's grace is greater. How big is God's grace? Well, we don't really know. But all we know is what God spoke to Paul. In 2 Corinthians 12 and 9, he said unto me, my grace is sufficient for thee. It's sufficient. You know how big your sin is. You know how big your mistakes are. But God's grace is sufficient to cover even the biggest failure, even the biggest sin, even the worst mistake The nights you wish you could forget, God's grace is greater. Musicians, help me. Your worst moments, young person. Moments that maybe haven't even occurred yet. Moments, maybe at some point down the road of your life, mistakes you may make, they are no match for God's grace. 
God can gather up every sin, every failure, the biggest mistakes, and He can cover them with mercy and He can cover them with His blood. He did it for Israel. And every time that Israel thought about the Ark of the Covenant, I gotta, I gotta imagine, they, they didn't think about the failure, but they were reminded that there was blood and there was mercy that could cover it. There's a Hebrew word. I'm not gonna try to get too deep here or become a scholar. I'm not that. There's a Hebrew word, and it is rashamim. Wasn't that really good? Look at your neighbor say, Rashamim. Your little head nod going on when you say it. Rashamim. <laughs> Rashamim is a Hebrew word that is translated as mercy in the Old Testament. However, mercy is not the most accurate translation of Rashamim. Because I am, on the end of that word, Rashamim. I am, it makes it a plural word. Because Rashamim is plural. It doesn't translate really to mercy, but Rashamim better translates to mercies. Plural. Which tells me that God's mercy is more than just mercy. God's mercy is so great and so strong and so deep that it can't be contained in just a singular word. Rashamim, it means that His mercy has no end. And when you fail God for the umpteenth time, and when you fall so far that you think you've exhausted God's forgiveness, think again. Because here comes another one of God's mercies into your life. It's not just mercy. It's not just singular. Something that you can reach the end of. But it is mercies. And I think that Jeremiah said it well when he said it's of the Lord's mercies plural that we are not consumed because his compassions fail not and they are new every single morning every morning that you rise up out of your bed and you get ready to face another day you've got to remember that God has another mercy waiting there for you to cover whatever sin whatever mistake whatever wrongdoing you have done God's mercy is there for you Grace will always be greater than sin. Mercy will always be greater than our wrongdoing. Regardless of the size or the scope of our failure, God can cover it with His blood and with His mercy. As you stand together with me, I know and you know there will be times in your life that you fall short of the grace of God. There will be times when you make mistakes. Micah 7 and 8, it says, Rejoice, rejoice not against me, O mine enemy, for when I fall, I shall arise. He didn't say if I fall because the, the prophet understood that there was just going to be those moments in your life when you get bad judgment and, and the flesh gets a little bit too much of a foothold and you will fall. Don't throw yourself out when you fall. Don't give up on yourself when you fall. Because God doesn't give up on you when you fall. The prophet said, what I'm going to do when I fall, when I make a mistake, when I have a failure in my life, I'm not going to stay down there and wallow in my grief and in my shame, but I'm going to get back up. I'm going to rise again. 
There will be times in your life when, when you will make mistakes and the worst thing you could do in those moments is to give up because you think God can't use you anymore. Solomon said in Proverbs 24, a just man. So we say a just man. This isn't a renegade and this isn't a rebel, but a just man falleth seven times and he riseth up again. You know what that, this is just kind of another little, you know, uh, Hebrew lesson here, but that suffix on the end of the word, E-T-H, falleth and, and riseth. That means a continual action. And so Solomon understood that a just man, he's not just going to fall once and, you know, then he'll get back up and he'll be perfect. But he said a just man will fall and even continue to fall. But what makes him a just man is that he also rises and continue to rises every single time that he falls. In those moments of regret and just outright foolishness and sin, don't you dare sit there and stay put in your sin, but you get back up on your feet, you rise again, and you start living for God anew and afresh every single time. Don't give up on yourself, because God doesn't give up on you. I'm almost done, bear with me. I've seen far too many people allow their mistakes and sin to hold them hostage and to keep them from doing something great for God. Don't be like that. Don't let your sin hold you hostage. Ask God to forgive you and then move on from it. When you repent for your sin, not just the first time, but the 10th time and the 20th time and the 33rd time and whatever other time, when you repent and you put it back under the blood, you are just as forgiven as the most spiritual person you know. You are just as forgiven as the first time that you came to an altar and the first time you repented. You're not less than as a Christian because you've made some mistakes along the way. Put it under the blood and trust that God will forgive you. He is faithful and he is just to forgive us our sins when we confess them to him. That wasn't written to a sinner. That was written to the saint. That was written to church people. I'm going to say a few more things. Can we just start gathering around this altar? As you come, just, just continue to listen for a moment. We're going to pray in a minute. I'm challenging some of us. The Holy Ghost is challenging some of us. Don't allow your bad days. Don't allow your biggest failures to hold you back from serving God. Get back up again. Get back up again. When we let our sins keep us from serving God, you know what that's like? And especially if we repent of something and then we still live under condemnation for those mistakes back in the past. You know what that's like? It's like us trying to take what God has forgiven us of out from underneath His blood and out from underneath His mercy. It's kind of like if Israel were to have tried to take those things out of the Ark of the Covenant. There's one example in Scripture, and last verse I want to read to you. It's in 1 Samuel chapter 6, 19. The Ark of the Covenant was an enemy captivity. And there was a group of Philistines. <laughs> and they tried to look inside the Ark. And the Bible says, 1 Samuel 6, 19, the Lord killed 70 men, 70 Philistines, because they looked inside the Ark. It's as if God was trying to say to us, don't you dare try to uncover what I have covered with my mercy and with my blood. 
Don't you dare try to lift the lid off of what I have done. Don't you dare call unclean what I have cleansed. Jesus is saying if you'll just put your sin and your wrong and your failures under the blood and leave it there, I will forgive you. I will raise you up and I'll use you in this day and in your generation. I believe that God today wants to allow somebody to just put some things on the altar and leave some things under the blood and under the mercy of God today. Can we lift our hands? Maybe this isn't for you right now, but I can promise you at some point, maybe it will be down the road. But if this is for you today, if you have some things you'd like to leave with God, just lift up your voice here. And for those of you that maybe you don't need to pray this specific prayer right now, can you just create an atmosphere for God to move and for God to work here? Can you also lift up your voice in the presence of God? Come on, your biggest failure is no match for his mercy. Your biggest failure is no match for the blood of Jesus. Come on, lift your voice, lift your voice, lift your voice. In the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus. I see shadows. Mm -hmm.